Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Valerie, and I'll be reading today from Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 14 and 17 through 18. When I finish reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and please respond with thanks be to God. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention on the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it outside and inside with pitch. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of the life under heaven. Everything that is on it shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, I am very, very excited to be uh, here this morning and opening the Word of God with you all. Um, we are, my family's going on sabbatical uh, starting next week, and um, we have been looking forward to that for about seven years. And um, <laughs> so to say that we are excited is an understatement. Um, at the same time, I keep thinking about the fact that I'm not going to get to preach for uh, a couple of months. And so I, um, I'm, I'm also uh, kind of grieving that a little bit, um, but I know that it's going to be a wonderful time for us, for our family. Um, so if, if you don't know me, um, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm married to Tiffany, and we have five kids of our own. And um, and all, all of their lives from the time that, that our first Sam, from the time that he was little bitty, um, we have, we've sought to fill our home with God's Word. And, um, you know, that means that starting out when they are really little, uh, that we read those little children's Bibles to them. We, we love um, children's Bibles. And um, if you are familiar with children's Bibles, you know that in just about every single children's Bible, there is the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. And always in the children's Bible, 
Uh, there's a picture, it seems like, of all the animals kind of like hanging their heads out of the ark with a big smile on their face, you know. And, um, and, and if you think about it a little bit, it sort of misses the point of the story. And uh, I'm not picking on children's Bibles. I love children's Bibles. Um, but, but what I do want to point out is that if, as an adult, when you think of the flood, that's kind of still the picture that you have in your mind of just the, the ark and the happy animals and that it's about, you know, this, this great story about, you know, animals and an ark, um, then you're really um, still missing the point. Um, it, you know, when we... My, my point is this, is that when you think about the flood... The, the Bible would say that there's some specific things that this, that this flood should bring to your mind. Uh, Jesus would say that there are some specific things that should come to your mind. The inspired authors of the New Testament would say there's some specific things that should come to your mind when you think about the flood. And so that's what we're going to learn about today. Um, and so pray with me and then we will we'll get started. Father in heaven, God, we again thank you um, for all of the the babies this morning, um, for the children, Lord, for the new life in this church, for the things that you're doing in this church, God. Um, We thank you for the opportunity to sing praises to your name, to lift high the name of Jesus, to open up your word and to have you speak to us. And we ask again that you would do that, that you would speak to us this morning, that, um, that those who may have come and they are seeking the truth or don't know you, Lord, that you would speak clearly to them about the gospel and what Jesus has done for them. Lord, for those who are here and who have walked with you for decades, God, I pray you would speak a specific and encouraging and helpful word to them. And that, um, that all of our ears would be open to hear what you have to say. And we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, so my sermon um, is going to be bouncing around a lot. Uh, we're not going to only hang out here in Genesis 6. We're going to be a good bit in 2 Peter chapter 3. So if you have a Bible and you want to put your finger in 2 Peter chapter 3 and save Genesis 6, um, I think that'd be a good idea. I'm, all of my scripture is going to be up on the screen so that if you don't want to flip around a lot, that it'll, it'll all be there. But we are going to hang out in, we are going to see a good bit from 2 Peter chapter 3. My sermon's organized into four different parts. First, I just want you to see um, that this flood was a, a historical event. This is real. This wasn't just a, a, a story. Um, uh, next, I want you to see that... Um, the authors of the scripture, including Jesus, uh, they, they want to connect what happened in the flood to the coming judgment. And so that's a connection that we need to be able to start making in our minds. Um, uh, next, I want to show you that the coming judgment teaches us to conduct ourselves in holy fear of God. And then finally, we're going to look at what Jesus has done to rescue his people from the judgment that is surely coming upon the earth. So let's jump in. Um, Number one, the flood is a historical event. 
Um, it's not just a story. Genesis 6 through 9 is a true telling of that event. It's giving very specific dates and referencing real historical people. Um, as Eric pointed out in his first sermon in this series in Genesis, we don't, we don't come to the Bible importing our ideas and notions onto the text. That's, that's what's known as eisegesis, when we come and we, we import our thoughts and our ideas and our notions onto the text. Instead, when we come to the scriptures, we want to come and say, what does this say and how does this define reality? And, and, um, and that is known as exegesis, letting the, the word of God um, define our reality, define our thoughts and our thinking. Um, the Bible isn't interested in myths and legends, as many liberal uh, theologians would like for you to believe, but it's interested in truth. And I, and I bring this first point up because it is very, very important. Many a professing Christian have been lured onto the slippery slope of deconstruction through the proponents of what's known as higher criticism, which likes to take the Bible and sort of, um, you know, put it all on the chopping block and say, well, was this real or was this a myth? Or um, can we trust this part of the scripture? Or can we trust that part of the scripture? What parts are true and what parts are not? Um, and this is an old, old lie that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden that says that God's word cannot be trusted. Do not believe that ancient serpent who still whispers, did God really say? The attacks on the truthfulness and reliability of the Bible are nothing new. Um, in the 1800s in England, Charles Spurgeon, his own denomination became poisoned with liberal theological teachings that spawned from Darwin's um, teachings on evolution. It became known as the downgrade controversy. And Spurgeon took a bold and forceful stand against the lies of those liberal teachers and unwaveringly taught the inerrancy of God's word. And because of that, he um, endured a horrific persecution that his wife and many people close to him believe were the cause of his early death. Um, the attacks on the reliability of Scripture are, are still... Um, happening today. And faithful Christians need to take a strong stand and not give a single inch on this issue. We need to believe in the trustworthiness, the inerrancy, the reliability of God's word. And that includes the story of the flood. How do we know that Noah and the flood is a real historical event? Well, aside from uh, geological evidence that points to this event, Jesus in Matthew 24, 37 through 39, um, refers back to it as a real event. Peter in 1 Peter 3, 20 and 2 Peter 2, 5 and 2 Peter 3 uh, refer to this event as a real event. Isaiah 54, 9, Isaiah believes in this as a real event. Ezekiel in Ezekiel 14, 14, all of these um, inspired authors of the Scripture, as well as Jesus himself, look back at Noah as a real historical figure and the flood as a real historical event. So, 
Enough on that, having established that it is a real historical event. I want to explore my next assertion, and that is that the flood is a harbinger to the final worldwide judgment that's coming. Okay, so now we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 3. Here is what the Apostle Peter thinks of. Here's, here's where his mind goes when he thinks back on the flood. 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 4, he says, They, he's talking about scoffers, they will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Pause for just a second. What he's saying is that scoffers are going to say, you, you guys talk about Jesus coming back. Well, it's been a long time, and he still hasn't come back. What, what would make you think that, that anything's going to change? But then here's what Peter says. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these talking about water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, so God spoke a word, right? And everything was flooded. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So, We'll pick this back up in just a moment. But here's what Peter is, he, he's, he's trying to say. He says, look, there was a long span of time between when God created everything and when the flood came. And, and, um, and he's done it once, and he is going to do it again. By the same word that he did it the first time, he will do it a, a second time. The first time he destroyed the earth with water, but he will destroy the heavens and the earth with fire. So he wants us to be able to make that connection between the flood and the final judgment. I think he gets this directly from Jesus. Here's how Jesus um, thinks about the flood or applies the flood directly to his return. Matthew 24, 37 through 39. Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You see the connection that Jesus makes between the flood and his return and judgment. We modern Christians don't particularly like to think about judgment, um, but it is all throughout the New Testament, this, this day of judgment, the day of the Lord, this coming judgment that is coming upon the whole earth. Um, Jesus speaks of this day of judgment a great deal throughout the Gospels. The Apostle Paul mentions it almost every single time he unpacks the Gospel and, and he talks about the coming kingdom. He refers to the judgment. And if you look at Paul's preaching in the book of Acts, he, he he's almost always brings in that the fact that there will be a worldwide judgment by a righteous judge named Jesus Christ. Um, it's, it's difficult to find 
a few pages together in the New Testament that don't at least refer to this coming judgment. And if that's the case, then, then that should tell us something about the way that we think. We, we ought to learn to think about this and think about it rightly. And the flood helps us to do that. I want to give you three things that the flood can teach us about the coming judgment. Um, first of all, Noah was warned a hundred years before the judgment came upon the earth. Now, a hundred years is a very long time to wait on a promise, isn't it? I mean, one year is a long time to wait on a promise. And Noah waited for 100 years. That is the equivalent of an entire lifetime with one focus, constructing an ark based upon one supernatural encounter, so far as we can tell. And for 100 years, he lived his life shaped by the warning that he had received from the Lord, namely that judgment was coming and he must be ready for it. 100 years. And brothers and sisters, we too have been warned of a judgment that is coming. The great day when God pours out his wrath on the ungodly, will come suddenly, even if right now it seems distant. Um, speaking of this very thing, look at what Peter says next, Second Peter 3, 8 through 10. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that, the, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He says, the Lord isn't slow the way that you think of slowness, or not for the reasons that you think that he's being slow about this. He's being slow because he's being patient. Because there are some in this room who've yet to come to repentance. There are some in this room who've yet to turn from their sins, to let go of their sins and turn to Jesus and cling to him and put their trust in him and look at what he has done for them on the cross as payment for their sins. He is delaying for you, friend, that you would turn, that you would believe, that you would be spared from what's coming. And for many across the globe, he is, he is patient that many, many others would turn in repentance from their sin to him and believe because the Lord will fulfill his promise that he has promised to return to judge the earth. Second thing I want us to see from the flood is that the judgment did come and that, that, that gives us an assurance that it will come and that only eight people were spared. As Jesus said, it swept, it swept them all away. Men and women, young and old, rich and poor, 
the wise and the simple, the religious and the irreligious, all were swept away. And God was perfectly just in doing so. They were building homes. They were planning weddings. They were having babies. They were starting new businesses. And suddenly their time was up. And so it will be when he returns. The third thing I want us to see from this is that it took the ungodly by surprise, but it did not take Noah by surprise because he walked with God. The final judgment, Jesus said, will take the world by surprise. He said they, they will be unaware when he returns. What, what's, what's happening? They'll be taken by surprise, but we who walk with God do not have to be taken by surprise. First Thessalonians 5, 2 through 4 says this, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. We don't have to be surprised at his return if we walk with God. All right. So what do we do with this knowledge? What do we do with this connection between the flood and the return? That's the next part of my sermon. I want to look at the fact that knowing that judgment is coming teaches us to conduct ourselves in reverent fear of the Lord. Look again at 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter goes next. He says, verse 11, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? What kind of a life ought you to live in light of what is coming? He says, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Peter wants us to see that knowing that this judgment is coming should have a great impact on our daily lives. Isn't this what happened for Noah? We're told in um, Genesis 6-9 that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. Well, what does that look like in practice? What does it look like for him to walk with God? Hebrews 11.7 is helpful. Let's look at that verse together. Hebrews 11.7 says, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So to walk with God, it looks like faith, right? He walked by faith and he did this by faith. And it looks like walking in reverent fear, in reverent fear. Um, what's interesting about this is that Noah knew that he was going to be spared from the coming judgment, right? He, he knew he was going to be spared. But he continued to walk in reverent fear in view of the holiness of God 
and the justice of God of what it was going to look like poured out on the earth. In the same way, even though we who are in Christ know that we will be spared in the coming judgment, that we who are in Christ will not be condemned when he comes, looking to that day still produces a reverent and holy fear in us. When we consider the holiness of God and what his justice poured out on the earth will look like, 2 Corinthians um, 5, 9 through 11, Paul says this, Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear, that's including Christians, before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, when Paul, who is a New Covenant believer, thinks about the day of judgment, it, it produces a fear of God in him, right? And he knows that he will not be condemned. Um, in other words, belief in the gospel does not negate a healthy fear of God. Again, Peter's helpful to us. In 1 Peter 1, 17 through 19, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver, silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This was not like a, a, a lapse in memory for Peter where he forgot about the gospel for a moment. And he's, so he's telling his, his listeners, his readers to, to conduct themselves with fear. He's, he's got the gospel forefront in his mind. He's thinking about the fact that we've been ransomed, we've been bought. And so what should that produce? Ah, oh, reverent fear. When we think about the justice of God, the holiness of God, and then we realize that he's done something to spare us from justice, it doesn't, it doesn't produce in us a flippant attitude toward God. It produces reverent, holy fear. The, the fear of the Lord is such an important theme throughout the scriptures. It is foundational for wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Psalm 111.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding as praise endures forever. All we have to do is look at the current state of our world to see where it leads if you have no fear of God. It leads to foolishness, senselessness. And, and we are all prone to that same foolishness apart from the fear of God. It's foundational for wisdom. It's foundational for holiness. Proverbs 14, 27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of 
death. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. If you, want to, if you want to test yourself to see if you fear God, ask yourself, do you hate evil? And, and in particular, the evil that is inside your own heart. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. It's foundational for holiness because, Proverbs 16, 6, by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. If, if there is a sin in your life that you are clinging to, that you're refusing to release, it's because you don't fear God enough. Because by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. And none of, the, none of us have this perfectly worked out. This is something that we all need to grow in, Right? But lest you think that the fear of God is antithetical to intimacy with God and relationship with God, I want to show you that that is absolutely not the case. The fear of God is foundational for relationship with Him. Psalm 103, 13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. Luke 1.50 says, His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation. Or Jesus said in John 15, 14, You are my friends if you do what I command you. Relationship with God. In order for us to have relationship with God, we need to uh, approach Him with reverent fear. He says in Isaiah 62, To this one I will look to the one who is humble and contrite of heart, and who trembles at my word. Um, and it's foundational to the new covenant. Look at this one. And this, this, then I'm going to be done trying to show you this is all through the Scripture. Look at Jeremiah 32. This one is, this is a passage about the new covenant, okay? And here's how God describes it through his prophet. I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever. Why? Is it, for, is, it so he will, is it so God will feel good about himself? No. For their own good and the good of their children after them, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And how is he going to do that? And I will put the fear of me in their hearts. Why? That they may not turn from me. This is foundational to the new covenant. So, what do you do if you don't really have a reverent fear of God? Or you recognize that it's something you need to grow in? I, w- I, would, I would say this. The fear of the Lord is cultivated through interactions with God within a love relationship with Him. Let me say that again. The fear of the Lord is cultivated through interactions with God, within a love relationship with Him. Psalm 25, 14 says, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. Let me give you an illustration from the Bible. When um, Abraham was still Abram, and he was living in Ur, did he fear God? No. No. So what changed? Because when 
Abraham is on the Mount of Promise with knife raised above the Son of Promise. The angel of the Lord stops his hand. And what does God say to him? He says, now I know that you fear God. So what happened? What changed between Abram and Ur and Abraham on the Mount of Promise? He learned the fear of the Lord through interactions with the living God. He'd come to know this God through interactions with him. Let me give you a, a different kind of an illustration. If some of you know my little four-year-old Millie, she's so sweet. Um, if Millie were running full speed toward a busy road, and I cried out to her in a, in a certain tone of voice to stop, I called her name and I said, stop, in a certain tone of voice, little Millie would come skidding to a stop. And, the re- and that only works if she fears me. But the very next thing that, that my little Millie would do is she would turn around and she would run straight for me and want me to hold her. Now, why is that? It is because she's learned to fear me through interactions with me in the context of a love relationship. That's what the fear of the Lord produces. Not that we would turn and run the other direction, but that we would turn and run straight for him. Arms up, pick me up. There's nowhere safer than with you. So many professing Christians start out well, pursuing God with passion, and then something happens. Because they do not conduct themselves in the fear of God, they begin to tolerate sin. And sin, when it is tolerated, does not stay as it is. It grows. And it destroys our souls until if they do not repent, they'll fall away from the living God. We, every single one of us, we need desperately God's keeping power to hold us, or we will walk away. That's the power of sin. But one of the ways that he keeps us is by the fear of the Lord. Remember what we just read in Jeremiah I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. We need him to put the fear of him in our hearts, to to produce a hatred for remaining sin in our lives, the sin that threatens to pull us away from our loving and gracious Father. All right, let's look at my last section here. Turn, turn your Bible to Hebrews 11. I want you to look at this um, verse. Hebrews 11, 7. We've, we've read it once already. 
but I want you to see this. It says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And that brings me to my last point. Jesus, the true and better Noah, knowing of the coming judgment in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Genesis 6 um, and verse 8 tells us Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse 9 tells us Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And then on down in Genesis 6 in verse 18, he says, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Noah found favor with God. Noah was righteous in his generation. He walked with God, and as a result, the Lord established a covenant with him. But the Lord chooses to treat his family members who enter into the ark with Noah as beneficiaries of the covenant as well. Genesis doesn't tell us that his family members were also righteous or that they also walked with God. It doesn't say that. It just says Noah did. Noah did. And so because Noah did, God established his covenant with Noah. So how were they saved? How were his family members saved? They entered into the ark constructed by the man of God. And this is a remarkable picture of the new covenant and what Christ has done for us. Jesus, the true and better Noah, is the only one who is truly righteous, truly blameless before God. No one has ever walked with God as Christ did as he walked this earth. So how did Jesus construct an ark to save us from the coming judgment? He did so in his perfect obedience to the Father during his time on the earth. As as he was living out a perfectly righteous life, he was building with his life a perfect sacrifice. Hebrews 10.5 says, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. The Father gave him a body, a body to live out perfect righteousness and then to offer up as a pleasing sacrifice on the cross. Knowing of the coming judgment, in reverent fear, Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly even unto death. And in laying down his righteous life upon the altar of the cross, he was constructing an ark for the saving of his household. Christ's body, his very life, was the sacrifice that would pay for the sins of his people. And because of this sacrifice, God made an everlasting covenant with Christ. So who are his people? Who are his household? Well, The Bible says that when we turn to Jesus in faith, like Noah's family, the covenant that belongs to another becomes ours. We become beneficiaries of the righteous one, the blameless one, the one who walks 
with God. His body and His blood are the only ark that can save us from the coming day of the Lord, but it is enough. When that day comes, all who have yet to turn from their sins to Christ will be swept away in God's just wrath. But all who are hidden in Christ will be saved, thoroughly saved, saved to the uttermost. There's a hymn I want to read to you by Horatius Bonner from 1850. It says, Come to the ark, come to the ark, to Jesus come away. The pestilence walks forth by night, the arrow flies by day. Come to the ark, the waters rise, the seas their billows rear. While darkness gathers o'er the skies, behold a refuge near. Come to the ark, all that weep beneath the sense of sin. Without, deep calleth unto deep, but all is peace within. Come to the ark, ere yet the flood your lingering steps oppose. Come, for the door which opens stood is now about to close. If we will be safe when the day of the Lord comes, we must run to the ark of Christ and enter by faith. Believe on him. Believe that his death in your place was enough and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. And Lord Jesus, thank you for, in reverent fear, constructing an ark for the saving of your household. Thank you, Jesus, that you perfectly obeyed the will of the Father and that, Jesus, you constructed a safe haven for us, a place where the just wrath of God cannot touch us, where we are hidden in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. I pray that we would appreciate what you've done, that we would conduct ourselves in reverent fear, knowing that the day, the day of judgment is coming. And I pray, God, for any in this room who have yet to turn to you. Oh, God, win them. Chase them down, God. Win them to yourself for their good and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.